0: Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Juan Gri, My first guest, Nicole R. Myers, is the co-curator of Cubism in Color, the still lifes of Juan Gri at the Dallas Museum of Art. Myers co-curated the show with Catherine Rothkopf of the Baltimore Museum of Art. Across more than 40 paintings, the exhibition explores how Gri brought color to cubism in still life painting of striking vivacity. It's on view in Dallas through July 25th before traveling on to Baltimore. The outstanding exhibition catalog was published by the two museums and is distributed by Yale University Press. It's available for about $45 from both IndieBound and Amazon. On the second segment, Julie McGee on David Driscoll. As it's been a while since I begged for five-star ratings and reviews, it's time for me to beg for five-star ratings and reviews. If you're an Apple Podcasts user, please give us five stars there. It'll help people find the program. If you're not an Apple Podcast user, please tell anyone you can think of how much you enjoy the show. Thanks very much. Nicole Myers, after the break. Explore an ancient trading center in Return to Palmyra, a new online exhibition from Getty. Discover rare photos and etchings of the city, including famous ruins that no longer exist, and learn how Palmyra has transformed over time. Read an interview with Palmyra's former director of antiquities and museums, Walid Khaled al-Sad, who grew up in this famous Syrian desert oasis, where you can trace his lineage back five generations. Dive into Palmyra's history and culture from the prehistoric to modern period with art historian Joan Aruz. Return to Palmyra is a dual-language exhibition presented in both English and Arabic. Learn more and start exploring at getty.edu palmyra. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Hockney Van Gogh, The Joy of Nature, showcasing the work of David Hockney and Vincent Van Gogh side-by-side for the first time in an American museum and only in Houston. Discover the expansive landscape paintings and vivid drawings of two renowned artists. For details on virtual lectures, curated shopping, and tickets, go to mfah.org slash Hockney Van Gogh. Artist Michael Rakowitz tackles the complex questions of history, heritage, and identity The 2020 Nasher Prize honors his pioneering sculpture, like The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, which responds to the looting of the National Museum of Iraq in Baghdad. Experience the work of Michael Rakowitz in person at the Nasher Sculpture Center, on view now through April 2021. Book a ticket in advance at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Nicole Myers, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Before we get into the specifics and the chronology of Juan Gris' Cubist advance, let's talk for a quick moment about what he brings to 20th century painting. What distinguishes his work from his peers, or at a minimum, his his Western European near peers, so, you know, Brock, Picasso, and Matisse?
1: One of the things that we try to bring out in this exhibition, as evident even in the title, is his use and love for color. He was just a natural colorist. Was never really interested in the monochromatic palette that characterized the analytic cubism, for example, of Picasso and Braque. But going beyond that, he had this penchant for bold patterns for these geometric armatures or structures that are highly complex that organize his compositions really throughout his entire 17 year career. And these are things that make his brand of cubism, if you will, unique and distinguishes him from again his peers in that period. If you know Gris and you look at his works, you will never confuse them for the work of anybody else.
0: Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. You know, you can mistake a Brock for a Picasso and a Picasso for a Brock, but you know, gree among that near-founding cubist group is is certainly unique in that way,
1: yeah. And also, I think for me, how experimental that he is, one of the things that struck me really early on in working on this exhibition is that he changes his style literally every two to three years. It is astounding what he did. And these weren't just half-baked experiments. He'll take one line of formal inquiry and really take it to its very end, creating these stunning examples that for whatever reason he might decide is not where he wanted to go after all and would completely pivot. He also used a lot of different types of materials, but also supports that I found also really interesting and unique in his production that he would spend six months, for example, between 1916 and 1917, painting primarily on wood panels. You don't usually expect to find that with an avant-garde painter of this period. So for me, that made him that much more intriguing that he was interested conceptually in cubism, of course, but was also really interested in the physical properties of the materials he was using and would become almost obsessed with certain lines of inquiry like the wood panels and then decide I've done everything that I can with this and I'm now going to completely change pace and do something else.
0: The catalog, which is quite excellent, is is kind of organized, at least the plate section is, or around the that, that idea that the Gris is working in, I don't know, groupings or whatever a better better phrase would be. As you know, we all know, Juan Gris was not with, with George Brock in nineteen oh eight when he first started building what we now recognize as Cubist Forms, and he wasn't there when Brock shared those ideas with Picasso later that summer. Gree comes along a little bit later. In nineteen ten, he he, as far as we know, begins painting in 1910. And he starts by making watercolors that are, I guess, to be polite, fairly straightforward, but in which the edges of objects ever so faintly, and I do mean ever so faintly, hint at beginning to dissolve into, uh, say, a white white background. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com of a picture called Three Lamps. It's a watercolor. It's in uh, Bern in Switzerland. But the next year, a year after starting painting, a year after these pretty tame watercolors, Gris is a cubist. Boom, right away. So what got him, what do you think got him from these pretty conservative watercolors to Jar, Bottle, and Glass, the 1911 painting from the Museum of Modern Art that kicks off your show?
1: Well, one thing I think that's worth noting is that by 1908, he's living in the Bateau L'Avoir. You know, when he moves to Paris in 1906, he gets introduced to Pablo Picasso almost immediately. And it's Picasso who gets him a studio at the Bateau L'Avoir. So he does have a front row seat to the development of cubism that Brock and Picasso, you know, will start 1907, 1908. So I find that really interesting that he's watching this, that he's in these circles talking about the direction of modern art, literally in the space, seeing this evolution. But you're absolutely right. When he starts, it's with these naturalistic watercolors. And even his first, well, the only extant oil painting that we know of today is also a very naturalistic still life and then, as you noted, just a year later, they start to have this kind of proto-Cubist aesthetic. And for him, I think the the catalyst for that was Paul Cézanne's work. Not surprisingly, of course, Cézanne also inspired Picasso and Braque as they're developing Cubism. But those really early works from 1911 and early 1912, where you've got these geometric still lifes that are almost sliced into pieces, these sort of open facets, if you will, that are still very flat That's really from looking at Cézanne. You know, when Cézanne dies in 1906, there's exhibitions held that year and also the following year in 1907. And in many ways, it was like a bomb went off for modern artists, just seeing his development of new pictorial devices to get away from illusionistic painting. And different artists will take different things from that. So for Greece, Cézanne was kind of the first step of an artist that was looking at still life, started with a relatively naturalistic idiom, and then progressed one can say towards abstraction. So those open facets and those strongly geometric simplified forms that we see again in 1911, I think starts with Cezanne. And then, you know, by 1912, you see that he's completely absorbed and adapted both phases of cubism, both analytic and synthetic, which is absolutely astounding that this almost self-taught artist within 2 years of announcing his desire to become a professional painter has cycled through these styles and with great success. I mean, 1912, he's in two exhibitions. He gets a contract with Kahnweiler, Picasso's dealer. So he jumps into the scene as this really talented, gifted painter almost immediately.
0: You can see the influence of Cezanne in, in Jar, Bottle, and Glass, the kind of way Cezanne paints pine trees and the way they move a little bit in the breeze is kind of present here in the way... Gree introduces the teeny, teeny, teeny bit of color that's in in the painting in, and uses it to present color and to kind of blur some edges, if you will, which which is all kind of a way of saying that jar, bottle, and glass is not colorless. It's almost black and white. And there are a couple of paintings here at the beginning of the show that are similarly nearly colorless and where Gris is figuring out what to do to get color into some, in, into places really where, where it hadn't been. How do you think of his, I don't know, you know, I would almost call it tone, his use of tone in his, these early almost, but not quite proto cubist works. Maybe they are, maybe they are proto cubist.
2: <laughs>
1: that's how, that's how we sort of talk about them. Proto cubist in a way is that they're these hybrid works. I mean, you're absolutely right that they're not monochromatic. They're not, black and white. And I have to say, this is true, of course, of (laughs) most art, but Gris' work in particular really suffers from reproduction, color reproduction even. It tends to make them look very muddy, and it eliminates the incredible brushwork and the subtlety of shifting tones. He is so skilled at doing this. He'll do this throughout his entire career, and it's almost impossible to see even in the best reproductions. You really have to see them in person What I love about these early works, less so in Jar, Bottle, and Glass from 1911, but you see it more in Table at a Cafe, for example, in Chicago's collection, is that they're actually studies in red, yellow, blue. You'll see this in Still Life with Flowers from 1912 that we have in the exhibition from MoMA as well, that there are these studies in primary colors. And to your point, he's definitely trying to figure out, how do I want to work this into the composition? How do I want color like Cézanne to play a part in how we read objects as three-dimensional you know, objects in space, but he hasn't quite figured it out. So they're almost compartmentalized with little areas as he progresses, where they start getting blended together. But when you get up close and you look at these paintings, they just have this creamy texture to the paint that he's using. And you mentioned this, the kind of almost feathering of how his contours aren't just open, for example, but these areas of paint really subtly blend into each other and texture plays a role as well. They are subtle and beautiful, and they might look all blue or all yellow from a distance. And you get up close and they're actually quite colorful.
0: As we've kind of been talking about, Gris' big leap forward happens with just amazing speed. I mean, it took, for example, Matisse kind of six or seven years to get from his first Fauve inklings to Fauvism as, as being realized. And here is Greece speeding from. Zero to fully developed in like a year. I mean, it's really pretty wild. And, and, you know, we should remember how slowly Picasso began as well. I mean, it really makes what Gris is doing here is all the more amazing. And his biggest leap forward, his biggest breakthrough is a picture that's not in the show called The Wash Stand from, from 1912. So far as I know, it's never been exhibited in the United States. I am not sure that I know anyone who's ever seen it. It's in a private collection. It's not dislocated. As Douglas Cooper relates in his famous book, The Cubist Epic, the washstand includes oil on canvas, of course, but also pieces of paper, collage elements, and shards of mirror, which Gree told Cooper, or Cooper knew about Gree having talked about as being interesting to him because, quote, it could not be imitated. picture wasn't even illustrated in the catalog for Mark Rosenthal's last big American Gree show, the 1983 retrospective organized by the Berkeley Art Museum. So two things about the washstand which you you have an illustration of in your in the catalog which is pretty great. I guess first from a methodological point of view, how do you think through greece development and leap with when when you have to reckon with a painting you can't possibly have seen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Always a great challenge for art historians when you're working with archival images and descriptions, at least we're lucky enough to have that for those that saw this exhibited in 1912. It's a really pivotal year for him for a variety of reasons, but he responds to the introduction of collage elements and Papier Collet that Brock and Picasso will incorporate into their Cubist works that year. And he starts to develop his own style of working with collage elements, both the appearance of collage through these kind of vertical strips that he'll start to use to organize his compositions, but affixing also elements, foreign elements, like the mirror, like the pieces of paper. One of the things that make Gris' incorporation of collage unique is that every time he brings it in, the object that he's including represents exactly what it is. So in this particular painting, the washstand, you know, you would have a mirror, for example, if you were to stand there and brush your teeth or comb your hair. You know, It's a perfect still-life composition for someone who's wanting to work in that genre in the sense that it's a picture sitting in a basin. So the composition itself, you're looking sort of down and across at the contents of what's on the counter. There's a comb, for example. There's a bottle of perfume or cologne. And then there's a shelf with these shards of mirror that he affixed directly to it. Of course, it's fragmented. At least it seems to be in the reproduction so that you, the viewer, going up to this highly you know, cubist abstract composition would still feel as though you're walking up to the real thing and see yourself fragmented in this mirror. I love that, this play with what's real and what's not.
0: And it's full of jokes. It's full of painterly jokes. It's jokes about self-portraiture. It's a joke about the bather trope, which had been familiar, you know, in French art going back a hundred years at this point or more. It, it has a curtain at the top of the painting.
1: Very theatrical for Greek. We don't really see right. this again after this, this pulling back of the curtain and kind of, you know, again, to your point, a joke, This this joy or this playfulness of pulling back the curtain on art, on representation, on what we consider to be naturalistic representation in painting and what the Cubists were rebelling against that Renaissance Western tradition of becoming more and more illusionistic by using certain pictorial devices and Cubism's aim to tear all that down and show some of the falsehoods involved in creating those illusions. So all of that is there. You know, Gris is just as humorous as Picasso and Braque and how he'll play with different elements in his works. I love looking at the paintings and looking for... Those clues or those hints at the joy, the humor, in addition to appreciating, of course, what it took to put these incredible images together.
0: It's a picture with which Gree seems to be saying again, I've never seen it either. I can uh, match your visual punning and advance it.
1: Oh, yeah, kind of up the ante. Yeah,
0: and it does. By 1913, Gree is not using only these muted tones anymore. He's painting cubism. He's painting cubism in color. What do you think motivated him to advance past, trying not to use the word tonalism because it means something else, right? But through toned, muted color into full, vibrant, booming color?
1: I wish I had a good answer for that of why he turns to rich color, apart from the fact that perhaps he always wanted to paint that way. And that exposure to analytic cubism perhaps pulled him onto another path of thinking about working more with a monochromatic palette. And maybe it just didn't suit him. And he turns back really in 1913. It's this incredibly pivotal moment in his career when he comes out with the vibrant, you know, often saturated tones, and then this incredibly innovative structure for organizing the compositions through these ver- vertical strips or planes. That shift perspective as you move your eyes across the canvas. You know, each one of these strips shows you a different aspect of the still life composition that he's depicting, whether it's a profile of a glass or tonal passage that goes from white to black to suggest the quality of light or atmosphere in the space. They're brilliant and they do seem to come from nowhere. I think he's trying to recreate the collage like effect that he's seeing in the papier collet and collage of his friends and mentors, Picasso and Brock, but he somehow metabolizes it into paint in this totally brilliant way that I don't know, they just blow me away.
0: You mentioned collage, this this moment when the paintings begin to explode in color is the moment when collage comes in for Gris. I think I hear you saying that that for you there is a relationship between reaching toward one and Gris reaching toward the other.
1: I suppose so. I don't know if collage is the thing that might have tipped his hand towards using color in this way. Personally, I think he was a natural-born colorist. If you look at even, again, the first watercolors, if you look at the first oil painting, it's not that they're so bold and bright, but he, I think, really liked working with color and was trying to find a way to introduce that to the style that he's gravitating towards cubism. And maybe that's where he also saw that he had a place to be original, to make more impact, to distinguish himself, perhaps, from his peers. I mean, it's certainly, when I when we think of it today, one of the qualities, of course, that does really mark his work apart from works by Picasso and Braque of the same period.
0: In late 1913, Gris Greece- color explodes in a wow did he really do that kind of way it's a painting called (laughs) grapes from 1913 you know it's loud like a cheap suit uh it's it's, it's also at moma
1: i love this painting it is totally bonkers laughter with joy i mean it's just totally insane in the best possible way you're absolutely right
0: so there are two things about this painting that jump out one is the obvious one bam color but the other is that it's full of jokes and references to cubes and to the grid. And and Gris is doing all of this at once. It is the color that makes the grid not drawn or enforced lines. So the grid is the color itself. So we see a napkin, for example, on a tabletop, and the napkin is broken up into a grid by not by line, but by color. Well, this painting feels like a summation of everything grie has learned so far and a declaration of where he's going. What what do you think he's um for you what is he doing with this painting?
1: I think that's a great assessment. So what's interesting is that he paints this in the summer of 1913. He goes to the Mediterranean.
0: The Mediterranean is right at the middle of the canvas, by the way, a tiny little triangle of Mediterranean.
1: I know, it's right there. You know, and he he goes to Couleur, which is that small fishing town where the Fauves go.
0: One Fauve in particular.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One Fove in particular, who, as far as we know, he does not meet until the following summer in 1914. But he had to have known that this was the, the summering spot of Matisse and other Fauves. I wonder, too, if that's where some of this bright color comes in. I mean, we know so many artists who went to southern France specifically to paint color or were inspired by the bright white light of the Provencal sun. So he wouldn't be unique in responding to it in that way. But you're absolutely right that it feels like a summation of all of the ideas so far that he's been experimenting with. And he breaks free from the strips. You know, he stays there for not less than a year of experimenting with how to combine these multiple views of the object with these other signs or indicators for let's say texture or volume. And he, he just kind of goes off in a totally different direction. During that period, he didn't paint a lot of still lifes. In fact, this is where we get some of the few landscapes that Gris will paint. And I wonder if breaking from working in this kind of hermetic sealed environment of a studio, for example, with set objects and being in a landscape brought new ideas and you see that infused back into the picture. But I also think it's really interesting that, you know, he starts experimenting with collage in 1912. He won't start really incorporating it in his paintings with any regularity until 1913. And then it's still sort of hit or miss here. It feels like he's finally come to understand how to translate the effect of layering different fragments or pieces of paper or collage elements purely into oil paint. So when I look at grapes from 1913, you know, we don't get the vertical strips instead we get maybe some of the first examples of him layering or overlapping these colorful planes on top of each other that he has not yet mastered. So it's a bit of a breakthrough for him almost building collage with all these different patterns and textures that you mentioned in a new way that was novel for him. And it's the first time too, maybe not the first time, but we see it a bit more pronounced, where he's incorporating shadow as these flat patches of just pure black, you know, in the middle of the composition that break up these vibrant red, yellow, orange shades. I mean, it's a really daring picture. It it makes me smile every time I see it because the works from 1913, the earlier works, the strip paintings, they're colorful, but they're not as vivid and vibrant as this will be. And he doesn't stay in the style for very long. What's kind of wonderful is that he goes back to Paris at the end of the summer and starts on what will become basically a year of papier collet, which are almost monochromatic. So he has this brief flirtation with these bold, vibrant colors, playing with the grid and with the patterns, making the grid actually more visible, not a hidden structure. And then somehow taking those lessons back to paper. It's this interesting back and forth, I think, between media.
0: These next two questions, I'm going to ask them in late 1913, but they're true of 1911 and they will be true in 1927. Gris is sticking with, with the Cubist vocabulary of pipes and glasses and bottles and guitars and violins and puns, violins and violins. Why do you think he holds on to Picasso and Brock's vocabulary, even as he... I think does something pretty different.
1: There's the easy answer in saying that these were accessible household items. He didn't have a lot of money. These were things apart from perhaps musical instruments that you would have laying around the house or the artist studio as props. There's kind of an ease, I think also of saison and you know the idea of apples that you know, rot after time (laughs) that if you're using objects like bottles or pipes, they're not going to decompose. They're always going to be the same so that you can use them and pick them back up whenever you want. But I don't know that that's really truly the answer why he sticks with the set repertoire. One thing, though, that he seemed to be proud of is that he credits himself as introducing the siphon or, you know, sort of a a way to carbonate your soda drinks to, to modernism, that he'll be the first one to do this. I've not gone back to vet and verify if that's accurate, but I trust Gre that if he felt very strongly about that, that he felt very proud that he was introducing a very modern mechanical object into this traditional genre of the still life.
0: Breathing air into the genre.
1: I love that. That's absolutely perfect. Yes. And bringing a bit more modernism, if you think of some of these other objects as being more or less timeless the siphon very much places you into the early 20th century. So it gives a sense of updating the genre.
0: The other question I wanted to ask that really covers the range here from 1911 to the end is to what extent was Gree concerned or self-conscious about his his technical ability, his experience and skill or self-perceived lack thereof as a painter?
1: He was incredibly self-deprecating and very, very self-conscious. And I write about this a bit in the book You read through his letters and he's always bemoaning the fact that while he feels that his conceptual ideas are solid, that his hand is lagging behind in terms of being able to bring them to fruition. And it's something that he experiences throughout, you know, his short career. He's never quite feels like he's landed there. And at one point even says that he thinks that color is his weakest area, which just has to make me smile since that's often what we appreciate so much in his work now. I think he's such a gifted colorist that he actually thought that was his weak suit. Goes to show, I think, how hard he was on himself. But, you know, he had a very fast, mostly informal training. And I think he was playing this game of catch up. So probably always felt a little bit behind in terms of where he might have liked to have been in terms of being able to paint exactly as he saw them in his mind. But you wouldn't know it from looking at the pictures, which I just find really incredible that they're just masterpieces of painting, pure painting. If you know nothing else about cubism, it doesn't even matter. You walk up to these pictures and they're just so beautifully made that he would have doubts about his technical ability is mind boggling to me.
0: Do you think that All of this, all of what you just said is related to why Greed dates his paintings, not just by year, but also by month?
1: I think so. It's so unusual that he is constantly tracking progress and he mentions, uses the word progress consistently in his letters to his dealers, where he's haunted by this idea that he needs to be making progress, that he has to be heading somewhere somewhere. You know, of course, when we look at his objects, it makes it easier. The ones that are dated with month and year, which is the bulk of his production, that you can really line them up and see. You can see the dead ends. You can see certain breakthroughs and avenues that he'll then pursue, perhaps in a different direction. So it's not a perfectly linear progress, of course. I don't think any artist probably progresses in that kind of linear way. But it's really astounding that he felt the need to document on a month-to-month basis where his art
0: was going. Tell me about Gris' paint finishes, and not just in at the end of 13, I mean, overall. Are they are they different from his peers? And by peers, I don't just mean Picasso and Brock, because by the time I think Gris' finishes get really interesting, he's very much in discourse and indeed in league uh, with Henri Matisse.
1: I mean, it's a really good question. I'm probably less well equipped to be comparing and contrasting them necessarily to the wide variety of peers, of course, that he's you know, communicating with and certainly engaging with in an artistic dialogue. But in terms of the finishes themselves, I mean, he cared deeply about the surface effects on his pictures. I mean, they're very labored upon, and I don't mean in a difficult way, but in a very careful and thoughtful way in terms of using different types of tools beyond paintbrush, beyond the wood comb, for example, to do the false wood graining. In fact, he often used rags, fingers, you know, use paintbrushes. He didn't use those metal combs the way that Brock did so religiously. In his pictures, if you look at the wood graining across his paintings over time, they're really different. They also evolve, if you will, using different techniques to try to get different effects. And he'll layer them. You know, 1915, he has this fun moment where, and he's not alone in doing this, he's adding, you know, sand and even sawdust to kind of give certain passages a bit more relief, a bit more texture incorporating them, I think, to challenge maybe the overriding flatness that was, you know, one of the characteristics of synthetic cubism. He didn't varnish necessarily the entire surface of his pictures, but he uses it selectively to make certain colors either sink or, again, have a different type of surface effect than others. So he's highly attuned to the different type of surface effects he wants to achieve And he'll use it to unify the compositions. I think for him, that was also a strategy. If you're looking at a cubist surface and it's fragmented, it always runs the risk of not feeling harmonious or unified. And this was something he spent a lot of time thinking about, of balancing compositions through form and through color, but also through texture. And I do wonder if that is another quality that distinguishes him from other artists working in these periods. That it was a very deliberate choice, and it's all part of the total balance of the image that you see in the finished picture.
0: Speaking of the varnish, you mentioned that that's, that's got to be a, a callback to the 1912 washstand painting and its mirror, or mirrors, <laughs> which you know none of us have seen, so it's hard to know how true that that may or may not be. You mentioned two 1915 paintings, Ace of Clubs and Four of Diamonds. It's at the National Gallery of Art. I, I side with your description of what's on the surface of the painting is sawdust. But fancy pantsy registrars would note that they're fine wood particles. <laughs> I, I just love that that up marketing term in a painting with sawdust on the surface.
1: <laughs> I thought, you know, I could say fine wood particles, but to me, that's sawdust, and that's maybe a little bit more accessible and approachable. Um, well,
0: that's <laughs> what What, we're it is. About, I mean, what does this mean? What it
1: is. Tiny tiny wood chips. Um.
0: <laughs> the other the other painting that you referenced from that year is is is. Known as Grie didn't call it this abstraction from 1915. It's in the Phillips. It's also in Washington D.C. I'm glad you mentioned these two paintings because they kind of mark a real change in how Grie is using color. He's using more color, but he's using fewer colors. And so here he's here. It's it's blue and green and references to to wood. So there's like some brownish colors too. But in terms of what we think of as boom boom colors, blue and green. This has to be his attention to Matisse, I think. He's using colors that reference Matisse, that are torn from Matisse. You know, there's Matisse's standing riffian at the Hermitage in St. Petersburg that Matisse painted in 1912 that is only blue and green. Flowers and ceramic plate of Matisse's from the fall of 1913, which is almost entirely blue and green. Goldfish and sculpture of 1912. At MoMA is is blue and green with a couple other colors and view of Notre Dame, Matisse's 1914 painting at MoMA is mostly blue, a little bit of green, lots of black, and Gris is also using black here. Is that what we're looking at when we look at these two small, terrific paintings, Gris cozying up to Matisse and saying, I'm, I'm with you now?
1: I think you're really astute because, in fact, Gris finally meets Matisse again in southern France on the Mediterranean and Coulier in the summer of 1914. World War One breaks out and he gets stranded and Matisse Sort of reaches out to help and it starts what becomes essentially a, a, a lifelong friendship between the two artists and what's really fascinating is that up till this point Gris has been working in papier collet working with pasted paper relatively monochromatic I see that loosely when he gets back to Paris and starts painting in early 1915 the time of these two paintings that you've just been talking about he explodes into color and he explodes into blue and green I think we definitely see the impact of that moment of exchange with Matisse. In fact, it's two ways. You'll see Matisse making some of his most abstract, cubist-like, more somber paintings, probably influenced by his time spent with Gris that summer, where we really see the influence of Matisse is in Still Life Before an Open Window, the Place Ravignon, it's credited... As Another of Gris' contributions to Cubism is the introduction of the motif of the still life before an open window to the Cubist idiom. And it seems very likely that he gets the motif from Matisse. I mean, of course, a still life before an open window, or even if it's a closed window, is a motif that you'll find in Renaissance painting up to this moment in the 20th century. But the still life before an open window, Place Ravignon, that's in Philadelphia's collection, is huge it's a really big, ambitious, monumental painting. I think it's the biggest thing he's done to date. So the fact that he spends time with Matisse, comes back to Paris, puts down Papier Collet as if it never happened, and paints this manifesto. Again, I think if people know Gris, they often think of this painting as being this kind of iconic moment in his career. And again, that painting is mostly blues and greens. So I think you're right that there's this moment where he's applying the lessons that he's learned from looking at Matisse's work from talking to him, but bringing it back again into the aesthetic of cubism.
0: I really loved the Matisse Radical Abstraction show that MoMA and the Art Institute, I think John Elderfield and Gloria Groom did about a decade ago. But that show and that catalog skipped Gris. And, and Gris' influence on Matisse, perhaps one or both of them was holding that in reserve for another show and another day. But one of the things that this part of your show screams is Matisse. Another way Gris engages with Matisse is Gris had been painting objects on tabletops before now. I mean, obviously, perhaps, you know, the tabletop being a major site for Cézanne and, and afterward— Not that other still life painters hadn't painted tabletops, but but Gris makes, uh, but Cézanne begins to destabilize it. We see Gris starting in 1915 and thereafter, not just putting things on tabletops, but deconstructing the surface of the tabletop and rearranging it in his paintings, which he will keep doing for the next decade. What does that move allow him to do?
1: I love how you just described that, this kind of deconstruction also of the tabletop, that it's not just the setting, but that it becomes this integral part of the structure I think it allows him to think differently about the composition and how he wants to show the different elements of the still life spread out across the canvas. When we get to this period, he starts really playing with shards or fragments that are often triangular in shape. Some of them are black, as you've noticed, to sand in for shadows. I mean, they're really sharp. And the paintings themselves start to take on, of course, On the one hand, there's an emphasis of flatness, but when you look at them with those alternating triangles in black, they look faceted themselves. I mean, the paintings take on this incredible 3D quality. So I think treating the table as also part of the still life to be fragmented and to be sort of decomposed or analyzed across the surface of the picture was yet another breakthrough of how to keep driving in this direction of showing 3D space using alternate means.
0: Yeah, just to try to build on that point with maybe a specific painting, the the 1916 still life from Detroit. We'll have it on manpodcast.com too, of course. He seems to be asking, can cubism be three-dimensional, even though the whole point of the damn thing is to flatten space? I mean, he, he seems to be using the means you described to question the entire project itself.
1: Yes, it looks like origami.
0: Yes, I love uh, that's this.
1: very good. <laughs> I mean, really, if, if you think to your point, it's very sculptural, in addition to still reading very flat, which is quite an achievement. It's at the tail end of what becomes this short experimentation with pointillism, you know, starting to incorporate small passages of it and works like glass on table from the Denver collection and using it in the way that Picasso and Brock do as A symbol or as a sign for transparency of the glass, for reflected light, pins of light hitting the glass. But he takes it to this extreme and it basically crescendos in Detroit's painting, where you get the signification of light through these triangular shards in yellow and in tan and in gold, using pointless dots of color to suggest transparent decanters and glasses. I mean, a total nod to Seurat, down to the fact that he's using contrasting complementary colors like purple and yellow, such a favorite of Van Gogh, for example. He brings it all together in these incredible pointillist compositions that are among his most colorful, but also his most abstract. I mean, he really pushes it to an extreme. And in fact, he'll completely stop. This is one of those lines of inquiries that even though I find them so appealing and so successful, we put the Detroit paint on the cover of our book, very quickly, it almost throws him into a crisis. And he feels as though his works have become too mechanical, too cold in the way that he'll describe Seurat's work as much as he admires them. And there's a complete and total backlash that you see in his art. Not long after he makes the Detroit painting, he'll adopt a completely different style.
0: Sinak too, of course, because he's is physically with with Matisse at about this time. And Matisse is also financially supporting Gree at about this time, and and he's on Cézanne's physical territory. Cézanne had been crucial to Matisse, and of course was crushed when Matisse went in a different direction. But if memory serves, you know, Matisse had a Cézanne or two. Gris would have seen that probably both when he was with Matisse, but also in that in that physical geography. So a moment ago we talked about how. Refractured his tabletops and made that made that a thing. In his final years, in kind of the last half decade or so, he begins to situate his compositions within outlines. So he loses the room, if you will, and just paints an outline around the action, around a bottle, around a newspaper, or around whatever. Why? what's he doing there? What's that about?
1: Yeah. You're absolutely right. That starting around 1920, 1921, he starts to create what I call vignettes, where he makes these very tight groupings, still life groupings, and he borders them with flat colors. With Lakani grew from 1921, sort of an off-white color, later he'll adopt red, for example, as the background. And the still life elements within the vignette do often have contours. They don't, really interlock or interpenetrate anymore. They're not fragmented planes. There's a new emphasis on solidity of the object. And they sort of abut, fit together like pieces in a puzzle, as opposed to, again, the overlapping planes and fragments that we associate with the sort of earlier phases of cubism. I mean, I think for him, this is an outgrowth of what started during World War I with the return to order, of which he was really, I think, a leader of intrinsically going back to, quote, unquote, more traditional Western values, seeking more classical balance or, again, the solidity, the stability. And he's just taking it to almost its natural ends by the time we get to what will become the last, you know, five, seven years of his life. I think for him, he becomes much more interested in harmony, in what he calls a lyrical, poetical, poetic quality. He wanted to balance his words, you know, prose with poetry. So the kind of abstract armature that we might see in a painting like Detroit with maybe a more subtle approach to balancing colors and to balancing forms and keeping things legible, which, again, is really one of the great hallmarks of his brand of cubism is that the primacy of the object was always really important to him. and. Maybe those works of the 20s was him realizing that he had taken abstraction as far as he wanted to take it and developing his own language, but wanting to return to the object and have more emphasis on this hermetic world that he's creating. But what's incredible about these compositions, paintings like The Painter's Window from 1925 and Baltimore's collection, is that you get a sense of that lyrical quality the formal rhyming of the shapes of the objects, which have been reduced to very similar rectilinear shapes, for example. And you sense that there's some kind of symmetry or that there's something happening with the play between the shapes that are similar but not identical. And it was this brilliant scholar, James Mai, who wrote this article that's somewhat obscure. Unfortunately for him, he discovered these incredible symmetrical systems that Gree was using in his compositions. So for example, the painter's window, you sense the stability and you might not be able to tell exactly where it's coming from, but in fact, the entire composition is symmetrical along a diagonal that cuts from the upper right corner to the lower left corner of the picture. You can basically map out almost every single compositional main compositional line or element in the painting, across the symmetry. And in fact, you can do that in most of his works from the 1920s, maybe from, I don't know, about 1924, 25 onward. It's just astounding. I think it becomes a bit of a a game for him.
0: Finally, guitars. The last five paintings in the show are guitars. Yes, I know one's a mandolin, close enough. Gris started painting guitars in 1913. He's still painting them at the very end, as you so plainly and directly point out in, in, in those last five paintings of, of the show. Grie would have known that Picasso had started making guitars, so three-dimensional objects sometime between October and December of 1912. Grie starts using them the next year in his, in his work, and he keeps making them until the end. You know, nothing probably could be more picasso a than, than, than guitars. So why does Gris use them, and why does he keep using them?
1: That's a really good question. I wish I had the answer. I mean, there's a period of time, sort of the later 19-teens, where in fact, we don't see the musical instruments quite as much. We included them in the checklist for our exhibition as Katie and I really wanted to draw on themes that are present in both the Dallas Museum of Arts Painting and Baltimore paintings. So within the incredible production of still lifes that Grie produces in his lifetime, we gravitated towards those that showed more of a connection with the works in our collections but you're absolutely right that at the end of his life you get this resurgence of the musical instruments and not just the guitars mandolins others this is the probably the only moment that scholars and i tend to go with them on this gravitate towards interpreting the subjects in the sense that you get these still lifes before windows but for the first time the focus isn't on what's on the other side of the window it's really on this hermetic sort of seal world of the artist And the inclusion of an object like a mandolin, for example, it really relates strongly to 17th century still life tradition, whether it's Spanish, whether it's Dutch. And, you know, allegories of the senses, of music, of hearing, the painter's window, including a palette. This is the first time that Greece starts including elements of his own trade into the picture. So there's a bit of an autobiographical quality, a self-reflexive quality. But painting materials traditionally in Western still life are also allegories of the arts of vision, of seeing, so that you get music and an emphasis on visual at the end. It does feel as though, in this moment, there's a bit more meaning to be had in the still life elements that he's arranging. And certainly, if you think about the fact that at this point, he's quite ill. In 1920, he starts to show the first signs of a chronic illness that will be completely misdiagnosed really throughout the rest of his life. He eventually dies in 1927 of chronic renal failure, but again, they didn't know that's what he had. So from 1920 forward, he has these great bouts of illness where he's not able to produce very much, followed by moments when he's able to paint and is quite prolific, but it's becoming more and more frequent for him. So the fact that you get these more traditional types of still-life compositions and what will become really the last few years of his life does seem to take on extra meaning as he's facing his own mortality.
0: You know, I kind of think I see guitars there in the teens. There's a painting that's not in the show, but that I think kind of gets at some of the things you just talked about called Seated Woman. It's in a private collection in Madrid, and the woman is made from two guitars. So I'm not sure he ever lets them down or ever stops making those sound and vision Jokes, you know, those sound and vision jokes are even in that 1912 watchstand, too. Yeah.
1: Well, and I don't want to imply that he doesn't. It's really about the frequency with which we see them so that, you know, it stays a motif. It's always a constant. You're absolutely right about that. But that we get in the 19 teens, some maybe more variety than we've seen before. And we did put some of those works, as you saw in the exhibition, as we found them to be some of the best examples, which was our goal of the still lifes, you know, works like the sideboard or the chessboard glass and dish. It's just that when you get to the later 1920s, almost everything has a musical instrument, which was maybe not the case before. So there does seem to be sort of a renewed emphasis, if you will, on these these objects. And the fact that they're not fragmented or abstracted, that they, you know, reappear with wholeness alongside, of course, other motifs that he's used throughout his career. They just have such a pronounced presence that maybe didn't feel as pronounced
0: before. And I'm also just trying to shout out a painting I really like, Seated Woman, because I mean, one of the other <laughs> things I like about that painting is the, the woman's hands are the strings of the guitar. Sound making joke. It's so good.
1: <laughs> they're so, they're so great. I mean, and I think if people know Gris work they might know better his figural works. Of course, he did do lots of Cubist figures. It's just that still life is really his preferred motif, his preferred genre, and is the bulk of his work, of course, are still lifes, But he makes such great figural work as well.
0: Nicole Myers, thank you.
1: Thank you so much. This has been so much fun and such a pleasure to talk about Grief with you.
0: At long last, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, A Version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens, open April 17th through August 1st, 2021. The fifth edition of the Hammer's Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A., The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in LA 2020, a version, on view April 17th through August 1st, 2021, at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and make reservations at hammer.ucla.edu and huntington.org. Welcome back. Next up, Julie McGee, who joins me to discuss David Driscoll, Icons of Nature and History at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. The exhibition is on view through May 9th. From Atlanta, it will travel to the Portland Museum of Art in Maine, to the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C., and to the Cincinnati Art Museum. The exhibition catalog was edited by Jessica May and published by Rizzoli Electa. It's available for 40 or 50 bucks from IndieBound and Amazon. As ever, we'll have links on manpodcast.com. Julie McGee, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: David Driscoll was a painter, obviously, this show, but he was also a historian and a curator. As you've worked on this project and become in some ways a go-to Driscoll scholar, what are some of the ways in which you realized that one part of his practice was informing the other?
2: What I would say might not seem so obvious to viewers who go to the exhibition. But David Driscoll was, as a scholar and as a curator, had a broad understanding of the potential of what art could be. And he was interested in all aesthetic forms, even as a collector, not just of what we, we would think of as paintings, prints, and drawings, but objects, say shaker furniture and beautiful vessels. And there's a openness to the way in which he appreciates beauty and form. And we see that in the range of artists whose careers he wrote about. There's not a single aesthetic thread that potentially makes them all fit together. And I think it also shows in his creative practice, which is really only threaded through by his creative ingenuity so that what he was doing in the 50s looks very different from what he was doing in the 70s, which looks very different from what he was doing in the 90s, except that there's a kind of quality of line and color there. But his love for experimentation, I think gives us a sense of how broad his perspective was on the global practice of art And creativity.
0: One of the things about Driscoll's practice as an art maker that jumps out at me is his career long commitment to the Western painting tradition. The figure, he does it. Nature, he does it. The still life, he does it. As you worked on putting this show together, did you take from his investigation of, you know, Five centuries of, of Western tradition, and then, and, and we'll get to in a moment what he added to it, but just that part for now.
2: In terms of painting as a tradition,
0: well, and and the subjects that he that he made sure to address over the course of his career. I mean, there aren't many Western standards on which he skipped.
2: <laughs> no, I I think that he both saw himself and placed himself in this long continuum of artistic traditions which he understood to be coming from a deep history that is European and American but he also saw himself as someone whose ancestry is African so that appears as a subject matter perhaps more so than as a quality of traditional making and his commitment to what he would call significant form. You know, he was an artist who was also a philosopher and read quite a bit on aesthetic theory. And I think he really believed in the potential for creative form to be right and, and come into creation through the hands of the artist. And in many ways, that was informed by Western aesthetic philosophy as well. And when we think about him coming of age as an artist at Howard University in the 50s and being introduced to what were very much Western traditions in terms of art making. Now, art historically, he was introduced to a much broader practice of artistry, African, Asian, but also very much trained in a a Western painting, printmaking, color theory tradition
0: speaking of the 1950s that's about when driscoll finds identifies one of what will be one of his major subjects across his painting life and career and that is the pine tree we first see it in in forest form (laughs) if you will in a painting from 1955 and then quite quickly within a year or two he's he's painting individual pine trees and they are they're really wonderful Why did the pine tree attract him as a subject? And then maybe more interestingly, why did it continue to attract him as a subject?
2: The pine tree was a subject he first started painting when he went to the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture as a junior in college at Howard University. And when he went to Skowhegan in rural Maine, it was... One of the most beautiful places that he had seen, aside from rural uh, North Carolina, where he grew up, he was born in Eatonton, Georgia, but he went to North Carolina at the age of five. And he, the trees of Maine, which are similar, some of the same pine tree species that he's found in Maine were also native to North Carolina. And there's a presence to them. And I would say there's an architecture, a structure that underpins much of his aesthetic, which is very much a kind of formal vertical Mm -hmm. emphasis with a horizontal emphasis that allows for different qualities of line and spatial interaction. So the trees were impressive as natural objects, They're impressive, especially in a climate like Maine, although he was there in the summer. But as many listeners may or may not know about David Driscoll, he acquired property there in 1961. The pine tree remains evergreen throughout all seasons. And he began to think about its symbolic relationship over time. Again, another kind of continuum as in the art form. So that... Pine tree became an important place for thinking through formal relationships, different passages of the season. He did his MFA study at the Catholic University in Washington, D.C., and for his final MFA thesis, he did a study of pine trees or evergreens at different seasons and then researched the symbolic meaning of them. He said, and for those listeners who might be interested in the in the catalog, there's a nice discussion about his time up at, at Skowhegan and talking about the pine trees and the way in which for him they offered an escape from some of the ugliness of in the world as a young Black artist growing up in the 50s and the 60s. But it's also a way in which he was able to exercise his passion for artists like Cezanne, right? Who would paint certain forms over and over again. And how can I do each one differently? So I think it provided a generative, creative space for him to exercise some of his ingenuity returning to that same form.
0: In some ways, Driscoll's first self-consciously major painting comes in 1956. It's called Behold Thy Son. It is a joining of Catholic art to biblical story to American present. It's represented in the exhibition with the painting itself, Behold Thy Son, but also by, uh, in the catalog, a terrific drawing at the Library of Congress. What does the painting depict and represent and how did Driscoll arrive at it?
2: I love the way you phrase that question in terms of all the things that it combines and because it, it speaks to both the image, the event, but then also the title. And Behold Thy Son from 1956 is an homage to Emmett Till, who was brutally murdered, lynched in Mississippi in 1955. But Driscoll doesn't give us a painting of Emmett Till He gives us an image that speaks to the moment where the mother of Christ is asked to behold her son, right? Behold thy son. So we see what is essentially a, what appears to be a beaten and bruised skeletal body that is like a crucifix being held from behind, supported from behind, so that he situates the death of Emmett Till in a position of spiritual transcendence, but also a reminder of the sacrifices, not only that Emmett Till made, but the continuous human sacrifice of the Black body at that time, and then placing that in a lineage to Jesus Christ.
0: There's a menorah in the upper right-hand corner of that painting. Why?
2: I asked. David Driscoll about that. And there's also, if you look in the lower right hand corner, there's what appears to be a sarcophagus. I asked him if it was okay to refer to it as a sarcophagus, like a, a casket. He never said why there was a menorah. I think he's placing specifically the death of Emmett very much in a religious and reverent. Space in many ways, perhaps to pull it out from the circulated images of his beaten and bruised body that were very present in the American eyes, certainly in the 50s. So it places us in a sacred space. And I think for me, certainly as a reader, the juxtaposition of the sarcophagus and then this. Menorah is like a keeping the candle on, keeping the light on, that persistence of the spirit that I think is essential for getting through the day-to-day racial injustice.
0: Yeah, I should have said that the menorah in the painting appears to be to be lit. Little little flicks of yellow paint referencing a candlelight.
2: Well, I was just gonna add in, in the exhibition and across from behold thy son so we've curated the exhibition so you could make these stylistic formal but also symbolic relationships to the structured position of the of behold thy son with an early pine tree because he's painting pine trees the same years that he's painting Behold Thy Son, this evergreen. And I will also just add for listeners that Behold Thy Son was painted at Talladega College at, and where he had gone to teach in 1955. He arrived in Alabama the same year that the Montgomery bus boycott started. So the civil rights movement that's happening in the 50s is a constant presence for David Driscoll. And he's having to negotiate that as well as be an artist, educator, scholar, working on his MFA. In
0: 1966, Driscoll accepts a teaching position at Fisk in Nashville. And there's a great, well, there are a lot of great photographs in the catalog from the Driscoll estate from David Driscoll's papers, often of him, Natalie attired in various art spaces. He was a very photogenic young man. But the photograph I'm thinking of is uh, a gallery at Fisk, and Romare Bearden is there. And Bearden is looking at Fisk's African art collection. And it seems to me that it's when Driscoll gets to Fisk that he begins maybe to look at actual African art objects in person, as we see Bearden doing in that picture more closely and more personally than he had been able to do before. Is that about when we see him bringing references to Africa into his painting?
2: No, it actually appeared earlier. And that when this goes back to his days at Howard University, there was an African art collection there that Elaine Locke had gifted to Howard. And, Anyone who was in the art department at Howard would have known and seen aspects of that African art collection. James Porter taught him African art. He was already familiar with African art, but he hadn't been in a position to curate it himself or really think about even aspects of collecting African art, which he did after he first went to Africa at the end of 1969. And there's an exhibition in the painting from Howard University, it's called Chieftain's Chair, in which for Driscoll, he was thinking about the concept of Africa, but you actually don't really see its imprint there. But he has always said that his very modernistic, almost facet-cubistic early pine trees were a way of him marrying Cézanne and African sculpture. But in terms of the direct, almost direct quotation that you're talking about, it definitely is more forcefully present in his Fisk years. And I would say it comes back first because of visits that he takes to Africa at the end of 1969 and then 1970, and then he goes back in 1972. And the photograph that you're referring to, one of the reasons we selected this one for the catalog is because there's another image of David Driscoll and Beard and that Fisk that gets reproduced all the time. And I wanted in this particular documentary photo to give a broader view of that installation of African art, because David Driscoll was the person who got to reinstall a portion of the African art collection at Fisk University, and to kind of see this moment where they come together in a way... Bearden and his own interest in African art, and then David Driscoll's interest in African art wasn't just visual, it was also scholarly.
0: How does he bring Africa and African art into his painting? What what in African art is he m- not just most interested in, but most interested in getting onto canvas?
2: I would say it's the African mask. He's He will take an interest in other things. The Igongan That comes from the masquerade, for example, in Nigeria. But the most persistent form comes in the shape of an African mask, which he collected and also repeatedly reused, not only in terms of self-portraiture, thinking about himself in the guise of an African mask, but they have both beautiful qualities of line and form in his work, but they carry for him a symbolic reference to the African ancestral past in which he saw himself as rooted. And I would say that often, especially in the works that you see in this exhibition, but it's not, with Driscoll, there's never a fixity. <laughs> you can't say always.
0: <laughs> no, there is definitely not.
2: He often so there's a there's a a work which I might point to Night Vision for Jacob Lawrence, and it was done in the early 2000s. You have an instance in which he is bifurcating the face, in which you have the semblance of an African mask on one side, and then often either a drawing on the other side. But in this case, we have him reusing a self-portrait from a lithograph that he made called Spirits Watching. So often you will get an African mask that comes in communion with as half of a split face. And then sometimes the masks will be completely there and dancing in the forest, for example, or appearing behind greenery so they 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 have these different presences throughout his work, and I would say that they often appear in a kind of linear form. He would draw them quite often in his uh, sketchbooks.
0: I mentioned Bearden a moment ago. One of Driscoll's most I don't know major paintings is is from 1976. It's it's about Bearden. It's an homage to Bearden. It features a Mask referencing, but also Cubism referencing face in the heart of the painting. I, I, I would almost say it tries to return the Cubist face to its origin, to the African mask. Driscoll made a lot of work that referenced Bearden and was informed by Bearden, I think it would, it, it's easier, maybe even too easy, to to cite Driscoll's interest in collage as, as going back to Bearden. So maybe we'll skip that. What else in Bearden did Driscoll value and carry forward?
2: I've thought about this a lot, and I do. One of the essays in the catalogs is a conversation between William T. Williams and and myself, and we touch on Bearden, and in some ways. As you pointed to, sometimes it's too easy to make this connection. Here's a African-American artist who is well-known for collage, and then here comes another African-American artist who's well-known for collage.
0: North Carolinians both.
2: <laughs> exactly. And David Driscoll would always tell this story about inviting Bearden to one of his exhibitions where Bearden pointed to one particular work and said, that looks too much like mine. Now this other work, that's yours, that's your voice. So he was, and whether that's apocryphal or not, the point is he was certainly haunted by the relationship of collage. And I I think part of me wonders, is this a, a particular problem for Black American artists, right? That they get haunted by someone who precedes them because we know too little about the breadth of artistic expression by Black artists. What I think is really important to think about in terms of Bearden's gift to David Driscoll is something that you might think it's really subtle, but I actually think it's really profound. By the late 70s, and there, there are these types, archetypes, that appear in David Driscoll's work. In addition to the African mass, you have his interest in what he would call as Americana, Still Lives, Chairs in particular. He has this beautiful Black Womanhood series. But we really see him turn to a much more personal, almost ancestral Southern experience in the late 70s and into the 80s. I think Bearden's history of making... Southern narrative subjects, classical ones, allowed David Driscoll to make his own Southern family narratives part of his pictorial vocabulary and in ways that are really important for him, that it gave him the ability to continue in a tradition that recognized those subjects are important and belong in our artwork.
0: That's a pretty good transition to the last decade or two of, of Driscoll's work. A lot of artists, as as they get older, simplify um, and reduce and focus more intently on on subject or form or the way they construct form. Not David Driscoll. <laughs> as the years went on, the kitchen sink made it more and more into the work. Why do you think he ran against? painterly type that way
2: oh my goodness david driscoll is capacious in his you know inventive mind and property in maine and maryland always showed this because everything was decorated but this is where someone who took being completely well-versed in oil painting and caustic fresco making ceramics making his own dyes and paints to then turning to nature to make his own ink, you know, why buy sepia when you can make your own walnut ink? And what about the pokeberry? Because, you know, that makes a beautiful kind of purplish ink color. He had this creativity that never ceased. And he had the audacity to try everything. Could a jar of Curdled mayonnaise be a good binder. I mean, he knew egg tempera and mayonnaise, the mayonnaise, if it was made with eggs, includes that kind of viscosity. So he liked to experiment, and more often than not, it, it succeeded. And that, I think, was his joy in the studio. This, we don't often look at his work and imagine that there's also kind of a joke there but honestly being in the studio watching him work where he you might think he's he's just making it up as he goes along in some ways yes but not because he came from this long tradition of experimenting he knew what would and what wouldn't work
0: julie mcgee thanks so much
2: tyler green thank you for inviting me and david driscoll into your studio.